1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: The Michael
3: Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.
4: Tuesday the 11th of September with much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. The doll resumes next week with uh, the busiest uh, term for government set uh, to be dominated by setting a budget for next year. Talks on that budget continue today between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil needs to agree to the budget measures proposed under the Confidence and Supply Agreement to facilitate the minority government. But that. That confidence and supply agreement is in itself in question as to when and if it will be extended. Fianna Fáil will come under pressure when Sinn Féin tables a motion of no confidence in the Housing Minister. And housing, health, wealth and poverty will all feature highly in the next political season, as will cancer. The failing in cancer screening programmes and how women with cervical cancer were not told about how they had been wrongly given a clean bill of health. Dr. Gabriel Scally began a six-week process to discover what happened and what a commission of investigation should do to answer the question as to why there was the non-disclosure of incorrect smear tests to hundreds of women. That process began last May. His report is complete and has been given to the Minister and leaked to the media, to the heartbroken families and indeed women who have been directly affected by this failing. Minister Regina Doherty, Minister for employment affairs and social protection in Gael TD for me east joins us this morning minister this is obviously going to dominate the next meeting of cabinet
5: yeah it sure is and good morning michael um the report will be presented to cabinet this morning but i think you can see it's um a lot of it's laid out uh, in the papers this morning so obviously has decisions have to be made as to what the next steps are um i believe that the families um are both living um victims and the husbands of the ladies who have already passed away are being briefed um today and yesterday, and I think collectively we need to decide what the best next steps are in the best interest of both the victims who had the information withheld to them um but also in the screening program going forward to make sure that we can reinstill. Um, so much needed
4: confidence because a lot of it has been eroded I think over the last couple of months so God, uh, very I'm important not sure the minister uh, was speaking a short while ago saying that he hoped to be able to change uh, the way that this had been planned to be uh, imparted to the people affected directly and indeed to the public and that perhaps uh, the women and their families uh, the bereaved families in some circumstances like Stephen Teep uh, may be told before the cabinet it briefed.
5: Yeah. I th- in fairness, with respect, um, I know decisions have to be made, but the the vital people in this whole debacle of the last couple of months are the people and the victims who have been affected. And so, I think the due respect needs to be offered to them. Um, it never ceases to amaze me why things are leaked, because uh, not just this particular issue and trauma. There are other issues, um, the tomb babies, the Magdalene laundries. When things are leaked, it causes untold hurt to the people who have place trust in a, uh, I suppose, in a, a process to try and reinstill trust for them and it just re-traumatises people and it's awful. So it's just, it's not good enough. But anyway... I think decisions are going to be made in the next couple of days, and hopefully they'll be in the best interest of hmm. victims and the screening process going forward
4: hmm. uh, and I believe there's some fifty recommendations in uh, this two hundred page report, uh, but uh, the families are waking up uh, this morning to find out uh, that Dr. Skelly's view is oh. that a commission of investigation is not needed.
5: again, I, like we employed Dr. Skelly to do a body of work. he's highly respected and particularly a by. The women and their families that were um, employed, but it'd be very much incumbent upon the families to tell us what they think if they accept the, re- you know, accept the recommendations if they um, have suggestions around the recommendations. So I think the next couple of days will be very telling as to what the next steps are. But the do, you, do you think
4: somebody guess- trying to manage this story?
5: Um, I hope to God not, to be honest with you, because I think it's Well, why else would it be
4: leaked? That's, I mean, that's, that, that, you know that, that's the purpose it, of leaking, isn't it?
5: Ca- but can I tell you, if we knew who the people were that leaked, and I know sometimes it seems obvious that it's particular ministers, but in absolutely most of the cases it's not. And in most of the cases, the reason people, things are leaked are by people who have nothing to do uh, with the particular topic that we might be talking about and it's to curry favour for another few today. It's despicable to be quite honest with you and we've had this conversation around the cabinet table and amongst colleagues on a number of occasions. We let ourselves down, we let politicians and and our profession down when this kind of business happens uh, because it's bad business.
4: But these women have been let down again. That's what I was
5: just going to say. Mm, The 219 mm, women mm. um, do not need to be re-traumatised and we actually, we had attempted desperately to try and deal with them with the respect. Um, and dignity that they absolutely deserve, which they didn't get here before. And yet again, somebody is shallow enough to think that it's okay for their own gain uh, to curry favour with the journalists. Hmm. It. Like it's
4: They were promised. They were promised a commission of investigation.
5: Well, I think that's probably what we thought we needed.
4: Well, um, it was promised.
5: Be, yeah, but it'll be interesting to see why Dr. Skelly feels that there is no need for it now. So I think that's the discussion. Now, if if you know if the majority of people feel that there is well then that's obviously a discussion that will come into the realm in the next couple of days. But I'd be very interested to hear what Dr Scally's report actually says and the reasons behind why he thinks there is no need. Maybe there's a full exa- you know, explanation as to why what happened and how it happened and there is no need for further information All of the information in his report. I, as I said, I don't know yet because I haven't been privy to the report mm. and I won't see it in full until tomorrow. Um, but actually I'm probably one of the least of the worries of the people who needs to see it. The ladies and and their husbands um, need to be seen and spoken to and I think that process started yesterday and will continue today. Uh,
4: And and, and I'm sure they'll be looking for responsibility and uh, accountability uh, and without a commission of investigation or some further action that won't be possible, will it?
5: Well, first of all, we all want accountability and responsibility because we want to make sure that this never, ever happens again. But maybe, you know, Dr Scully was able to highlight where the accountability lies but, in in the absence of knowing within the report michael i'd be speculating so i don't know but let me tell you i can i can assure if there are still questions unanswered well then that's not satisfactory and even if there are only a small number of women who still have questions to be answered that's not satisfactory these women have had their lives devastated in some cases we know some of these women have already gone um to their maker uh through absolutely no fault of their own so you know i like this is as serious as it gets um and I, the teacher did promise that a commission of inquiry if it was required would be given. It's not like we're not short of commissions in this country. So if there are things that need to be unearthed in the best interest of both the victims already and the future viability of this screening program, which, you know, we need to remember has saved tens of thousands of women's and girls' lives. Um, then that's what's important, not cost, not time, you know. So the next couple of days, I think, will determine exactly what is wanted by the victims, um, depending on what the, the, the fullness of the information that's in Dr. Skelly's report. But as I said to you,
4: I'll have more information tomorrow or maybe even later on today. I might see the report. But mm-hmm. Okay, Minister. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, about some of the other issues uh, that uh, will obviously dominate uh, doll business uh, next week uh, and uh, that is if uh, there is, isn't the dissolution of uh, the doll? A lot of this hinges, of course, on the confidence and supply uh, agreement. When do you expect that that will be renewed?
5: Um, I don't think. I think genuinely talk of um, elections is... Only electioneering, um, and it's potentially for an election next year or the year after. But you know what politicians are like, we all love elections. Um, I don't think there will be an election, I think there will be um, a thorough discussion on the extension of confidence and supply. Um, You know, I think from the Taoiseach letter, that we would like that to happen sooner rather than later. Fianna Fáil have made it clear that they don't want it to happen until after the budget. The budget negotiations started uh, between ourselves and Fina Fall mm. last
6: Tuesday. Mihal Martin say, wrote yes. yesterday
4: that the Taoiseach is playing a political game, pure and simple, uh, and that he spent a week trying to create an aura of instability around his own government.
5: Well, you see, there is instability after um, the two budget bills are passed. So after the finance bill is passed and after this, my own social welfare bill will be passed then the the doll and the the Shannon will be living on a week-to-week basis. And that's not, you know, uh, fruitful for any parliament. It's not stable. It's certainly not um, the way anybody would want to have their country run. Uh, We are in um, the end days of a lease agreement with Fianna Fáil. Mm. And like any good negotiations, you renegotiate something before your lease ends. Well, you agreed. You
4: see, the thing here, Minister, is that you agreed to renew it it. at the
5: end of... No, no, review it at the end of 2018. Yes. And we're going into the final doll session yes. of a, 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 so And what
4: Micheál Martin said, and just a quote from what he wrote in the Irish Examiner yesterday in relation to what you've just said, it seems that the Taoiseach believes that his ministers like Regina Doherty can't be expected to do their jobs unless they have a guarantee of two more years of security in office.
5: Well, if, You know what, it's not about two years, it's about security. So if the security is two months, two years, 12 months, mm. you know, that's what that's what gives us the stability to be able to continue with programmes of reform. He said that
4: that's just a, a, another one of the usual attempts to blame everyone else for the government shortcomings. You know what,
5: I, I'm really low. you see, now what the, the goading that's going on at the moment between Fianna Gale and Fianna Fáil, and that's all it is, right, mm. is, is in an attempt to heighten the atmosphere. I have a job of work to do. We are in the middle of um, major budget negotiations for me to try and uh, assure that I secure the largest portion of the money that's available uh, for the 2.1 million people that are aligned on my department on a week-in, week-out mm. basis. There are other departments that are trying to do the same, health, housing, transport. Um, Fianna Fáil, for whatever reason, want to delay these conversations. Well, they I say no that you're they it.
4: say that you're being arrogant, that uh, you're making stop. an arrogant demand for power without accountability.
5: First of all, we're accountable on a week-in, week basis, if not to the people, to the Parliament, and to, in particular to the fourth state, which report literally in minute details, to the government's well, you're, 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 we you're also, you're also
4: you, Well, that's, that's, that's so. the accusation from Mihol Martin, the leader of the main that's opposition that's party, that's who that's has right. a confidence and supply agreement with you, and that's he's, a, he's also right. describing you as the past-the-book uh, government. And why, I'm sorry I must have missed that. Why are we, why are
5: we the past-the-book?
4: Because, uh, um, because, take housing, for example, he said that you're trying to shift the blame to local councils. He said that was as depressing as it is <laughs> cynical.
5: Mm. Council, I think that the, the, the clue is in the name and I think Owen Murphy described this last week Council houses and council estates are called such because they are delivered by local authorities by county councils Now there's nobody passing responsibility but there is a shared and joint responsibility of all of the agencies of the state to deliver on behalf of our Irish people and that's whether that's the healthcare service or whether it's you know local authorities or our local development um, agencies that we're going to launch this week you know Government agencies deliver for Irish people, and we have a shared responsibility to work together under a program for... I haven't been businesses. delivering houses, course, Minister. Yes. Well, actually, if we want to have that conversation, you full know that starting from a very, very low base of practically zero last year, we've built 35% more houses, and it's going up year on year. Mm. But we're only two years into a five-year yeah. plan. Myself, Fifteen, so f-
4: 15,000 people are homeless.
5: Well, 10,000 people are currently on the list. We have Mm. 79,000 people on the local Peter
4: McVary puts it down at 15,000, and the government stands uh, accused on an ongoing basis of massaging the figures.
5: Okay, I'm I'm certainly not going to fight with Peter McVary, who has given and dedicated his life um, to helping people who are more or less fortunate than most of us are. What I'm concerned about is that the plan that was started two years ago is starting to move and deliver social housing. We will have 20,000 houses built in Ireland this year, which is nowhere close to what was built last year. And as that plan progresses, and more initiatives are introduced, like the uh, land development agency that will be uh, announced later on this week, collectively, with our local authorities and our county councils, we will deliver solutions for Irish people. Mm. That is our job. There's nobody passing the book. And again, we're here on inflammatory language for Singapore because we're all anticipating election. I have a job to do, the Cabinet have a job to do, all of our Finnic Ltds have a job to do. So if we want to stop with the drama and get back to doing the job mm. that we were employed to do, that's the only reason why we're looking for an extension of the Confidence and Supply Agreement. Yeah. And if anybody is playing games here, it's Fianna Fáil. Okay, but Fianna so you know Fáil
4: are going to win this game, aren't they?
5: Well, you know what, the only losers in this would be the Irish people.
4: Okay, but so in Fianna terms Fianna of the political game.
5: They're desperately trying to tell us how yeah. sure and responsible they are and they have been, and that they're not responsible for the crash of 2008, mm. 9, and 10, and all the ramifications to the
4: But end. you're going to go ahead, Minister, aren't you, and agree are. a budget with Fianna Fáil, aren't you?
5: We're going to try, yes, Yeah, we,
4: we, without, with, without renewing or extending the confidence and supply agreement.
5: Well, again, the invitation is open, and yes. it'll be reissued on a weekly basis for the next mm. week. And, and, and
4: you've been told where to go with it. Uh, so, uh, and
5: again, that's so responsible, Michael.
4: Well, that's an opinion. Fianna Fáil says quite the opposite. They're saying they're being responsible they're doing what they said they would do
5: but they would rather bring Ireland to the brink yeah. um, of having no agreement or no stability just to suit their own political purposes. So, okay. you know what, at okay. some point... Okay,
4: okay, okay, I won't argue with... you. over the
5: next couple of weeks, we will agree a budget.
4: Okay, I won't I argue with your you, analysis, uh, but you are going to agree a budget, uh, and unless Fianna Fáil agrees to renegotiate or renew the Confidence and Supply Agreement, you'll do that anyway, won't you? So that means Fianna Fáil has won the spat.
5: This isn't about winning. Like, I don't, I don't know why... And I'm not saying that you're saying this, but I don't know why people would see this as a competition. It's not a competition. Simply put, we want stability well, to be able to govern the Irish people. Well, to implement the well it's very interesting to people
4: when the down. government and the Taoiseach climbs down, because you've been saying all along that it has to be renewed in order to agree a budget. And I'm putting no, no, to you... No, no, no,
5: God, no, 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 no. I'm sorry, no? I don't know why you've heard that, but that's absolutely inaccurate. It's nothing to do with the budget. The budget is going to happen. The negotiations are going to happen. Whether we agree one or not agree one will be determined of the outcome in the next couple of weeks' deliberations. And I very much hope we do. And based on the two gentlemen that are the negotiation team for Fianna Fáil, Barry Cowan and Michael McGrath, I very much know that they want to agree a budget. So we're all on the same page. We want to deliver for the Irish people. So the dance is here, is whether Fianna Fáil want to leave it to the very end of a lease agreement before we start renegotiating it, or have the parallel discussions now And actually, I don't understand what the drama is, to be honest with you, Michael. We don't want to leave it till the last minute. They do. We might meet somewhere in the middle and then everybody will wonder what the fuss is. Because the people mm. at home are scratching their head thinking this is just the usual palaver from Fianna Fáil and Senegal, and we wish to God they'd get over it.
4: Because this. I suppose they don't want, uh, uh, I mean I imagine that the argument is that they don't want uh, next year to be hearing from Bernardo's uh, that uh, there's more children in poverty than has ever been and that there's no hope of them coming out of poverty. They don't want to hear that there's more people homeless uh, uh, and that it's set to get worse. Uh, they don't want to hear that there's a, a million people uh, waiting for a hospital appointment and it's going to get worse. Uh, the the record well, well, actually, of government.
5: If you see Michael Bernard has actually issued their annual report today, um, and actually, I'm actually meeting um, Frank Sinney hopefully later on this week to discuss my ambition. Um, to bring the 85,000 children who are living in consistent poverty out of that trap by 2020, as is a programme for government commitment. And I made that statement um, earlier on this year. We have a pre-budget forum around the middle of July to meet with all my NGOs to find out what they feel would be in the best interest of the people that we serve with the Department of Social Welfare and how best we can deliver on our, our commitments. And I made a statement that day that if we don't do something significant, well, then we're not going to meet that target. And actually... The 85,000 children that are living in consistent poverty are 85,000 too many, but the number is slowly coming down, but it's nowhere good enough and never going to be able to achieve the 2020 target. The housing list is actually coming down. We had 167,000 people on the social housing list last year. It's down to 79 now. And the waiting lists, albeit they're enormous, are actually reducing. So, slow, steady, incremental progress is what we need to make. But you're not going to make those things when you have the likes of Willie O'D demanding, and by the way, who's not even on the negotiating team for Fianna Fáil, mm-hmm. demanding... That we give
4: everybody a fiver. Okay, well, 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 let's so talk. Ta- let's l- let's talk about your targets, Minister, because uh, I'm not sure if you've read Fergus Finlay's article in the Examiner this morning, Regina Doherty. But he said uh, that uh, there was uh, this target uh, of halving uh, the number of children who live in consistent poverty from 150,000, taking 75,000 out of poverty was a pretty daunting figure. But the Tax Strategy Group has estimated that in order to do the same now uh, and half the current figure of a 190,000, some 95,000 children will have to be lifted out. Uh, so that's 40,000 more uh, than would have been the case. So instead of, of halving it, you've increased it.
5: No, the actual, um, I haven't read Fergus's article this morning. Um, the, the latest report is that we have 120,000 children living in consistent poverty, according to the CSO and the ESRI. Um, the target is actually to take two-thirds of those children out of consistent poverty by 2020. Now, actually, in my mind, I didn't set the target. I wasn't the minister at the time. I don't know how you choose which two-thirds you take out, so it's a bit of a bizarre um, target. The, the, the issue for government is, is that we should have no children living in consistent poverty. We should have no children in this country that can't expect to have meat in their dinner two days a week, mm. to expect them to go to school with a decent pair of shoes on. Or, or a sleep in Garda
4: stations, yeah.
5: Yeah, It shouldn't be acceptable Mm. and that's why we need to do something significant in the budget this year. For the first time in nine years last year I increased the qualified child uh, payment to all children in the country. For the first time in eight years last year I increased the um, lone parent's uh, availability of money that they earn themselves through working to be able to bring home their own money before their social their social welfare is cut. These are the people, that the families that are living in consistent poverty. And if we continue to ignore them because they don't have a voice, because they don't have uh, a very large focus group behind them, or they're not going to see ten thousand people outside Leinster House. These are the people who don't have a voice, that if they don't have people like me and Bernardo sticking up for them at budget time, well then they're going to be consistently left behind and we won't reach our targets. I'm absolutely adamant that that will be number one on our list there, number one on my list this year.
4: Okay, well I don't think Fergus Finlay would see Bernardo's on the same page as government policy.
5: Well, he's an organisation, he's a gentleman who has been serving Barnardos for the last nine years, he's retiring Mm -hmm. later on this year, and he has made a significant impact to the tens of thousands of families and children that he and Barnardos um, have assisted over the last number of years. He's always been at the coalface. He relies on the generosity of the general public and the taxpayers' part to be able to do that. But... We rely. When I talk about working with us, we rely in government on the basis of his advice as to what can be done to best achieve, you know, what we want is, which is okay. to reduce those numbers. All and right. it's not just about money; well, if it was about money to be
4: easy. I'm sure he'll have plenty more to say to you later in the day as Bernardo's launches that report, Minister. We leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for Thanks joining us here on the program this morning. That's uh, Finnegall Ltd. For me, the East Regina Doherty, who's uh, the Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection.
7: Michael Reed
4: on on LMFM. Uh, What may not be so high on the political agenda in the next dull term is the cost of motor insurance. It's very expensive but we all know that. So it's yesterday's news as such. This is according to the AA which says the government appears to be bored with insurance and has allowed the issue to grind to a halt. We're joined by Connor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland, and this follows on from the release of a survey of 5,000 motorists who, uh, to a large extent, believe that there's a high level of fraud when it comes to personal injury claims. But why is it, Connor, do you think that the government has become bored with it? Is it because it's become commonplace for the rest of us?
1: Um, I think that's probably it, exactly, Michael. Yes. I mean, I- I- in. 2015, early 2016, the cost of motor insurance was was the big crisis. I mean, it was rocketing up. It came from what was probably too low a base. I mean, a reckless insurance industry was selling it below cost, and those chickens were coming home to roost. But even so, it shot up. I mean, everybody's insurance premium effectively doubled. And heaven help you if you're in one of the problem categories, if you had a claim or penalty points or a returning immigrant or something like that. Um, And government at least said they were treating it as a priority. Now, we were lobbying very hard on that at the time, and there are a number of reforms that we wanted made. And to be fair, um, a a working group was established under Owen Murphy, who was the junior finance minister at the time. I know he's famous for other things now. Mm. Uh, And between that and an Orochvis committee uh, sessions and and the, the various working group meetings, there was thrashed out what was actually a pretty good set of proposals. I mean, we were on board with them there was a lot of good stuff that needed to happen and um, so a, a good report with good actions but unfortunately two things have happened since then one is that the motoring consumer has become accustomed to high insurance prices so your insurance price is still probably double what you were paying three years ago but it's no worse than it was last year mm. and the temperature has gone out of the issue and the other thing is um you know i don't i don't often like just to be sort of knee-jerk critical of government or to say things just for the sake of it but it's evidently true the government has moved on to other issues insurance prices just aren't sexy for them anymore they'd rather talk about brexit they'd rather talk about housing we've had a you know a papal visit since we've had referenda since and the government magpie-like has just moved on to the next shiny thing and they've left the insurance work unfinished. And the, the latest quarterly report, I mean, that, that, that working group produced a, a, a report with a set of actions for quarterly updates. And, and, you know, the first couple of quarterly updates were released with great fanfare. They used the government press centre, they brought in all the journalists, they wheeled out ministers, they said they were doing this, they said they were doing that. The latest two quarterly reports were just slipped out on a quiet news day and nothing said about them. Okay. And the update on the actions are pathetic pathetic so literally they wrote down a good great game plan they were all on board for doing it and they simply moved on to other things and neglected it because the political temperature has gone out of the issue as we become accustomed to high prices.
4: Your survey this week was pretty dramatic, wasn't it? I mean, you're suggesting, or at least it is estimated, that fraud costs each of us an additional €50 in terms of what we pay for our policies. But a fifth of people, at least a fifth of people, say that they know of somebody who's exaggerated a claim.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, that, that 50 euro estimate was actually a central bank estimate put on it a, a number of years ago. It's been challenged. When we put it forward, some, you know, other insurance, you know, in- the insurance industry and various others have challenged us on it. Um, but it comes from the central bank and we think it's, it, it's logical, it's about right. Now, there's 2 million private motor insurance policies in the country and 50 quid ahead is 100 million. Into a kitty to pay for fraud, um, and if you and if if you look at um, just the ordinary citizens out there, um, unfortunately, about one in five believe that they know somebody who has taken a bogus or exaggerated personal injury claim. It's worth saying, Michael, that they're not necessarily correct. Just because you're suspicious mm-hmm. of your neighbour, you know, doesn't mean you're right in that. And there genuinely is such a thing as real whiplash, as a real personal injury as a legitimate and fair personal injury claim. They're not all exaggerated, but obviously, clearly, there is a huge amount of spoof and exaggeration and fraud with a small F and small fraud with a big F and and a a legal industry getting involved and and the uh, circumvention of the Injuries Board for Settling Claims. And all of that gravy train Mm. is funded by the motorist at the bottom of the food chain. There's nobody else. Lawyers aren't paying money into this. Medical experts aren't paying money in. The insurance industry isn't paying money in. The government isn't. All of the money to fund this entire pyramid Ponzi scheme is coming from the two million motoring consumers at the bottom of the food chain. They're the only source of wealth in the whole thing. and And the insurance industry doesn't care. The legal industry is actively incentivized to preserve the broken status quo. Government said it was doing something about it, but it's got bored. The solution, as far as everybody is concerned, is let's not bother solving the problem. Let's just make sure we can put an accurate price on it. Charge the punter the accurate price. Let the punter get used to that and Mm. let the gravy train flow on.
4: Yeah, and whether it's 50 euro or 30 euro or 80 euro for that matter, uh, there's a a level of fraud, as you say, and that goes into our our premiums. And how those claims are adjudicated on is quite often in a a way that pays for these lawyers. uh, And there's no need for that. you say?
1: Well, yes, that's right. Look, if we had a system that worked, we wouldn't need lawyers. They simply would not be involved. I mean, if I crash into the back of your car tomorrow, there's no dispute as to liability. The crash is my fault. The only thing that needs to be established is what level of compensation is reasonable to you, given the injury that you suffered. Now, we have a mechanism for that. There's something called the Book of Quantum, which is accurately updated and says exactly what an injury of given severity is worth And then we have the injuries board, which will look at your case and make its recommendation. And that's all we need. Mm. But every time that happens, there's also a lawyer. And the lawyer is whispering in your ear saying, Michael, leave that with me. I'll see if I can get you an extra few bob. Mm. And the lawyer then threatens a lazy and complacent insurance company, you know, tells the insurance company we'll go to court and fight it. The insurance company then says, you know what, we'd rather not fight it. Let's throw him an extra few bob and make him go away. And and that happens 80% of the time.
4: And I suppose there is some logic to that as well, though, isn't there, in that the insurance company has to pay its lawyers?
1: Well, indeed. I mean, everybody involved is following their own self-interest. So even you or your lawyer is saying, look, Michael is genuinely entitled to 20 grand for this injury, but leave that with me. I'll pull a few strings and Mm -hmm. I'll kick a few shins and I'll get him 30 grand. Now, the lawyer might think that he's adding value, But given that that, that this happens in 80% of cases, only 20% of cases are actually settled by the Injuries Board. In 80% of cases, the lawyers get involved to get the crash victim more money than their injury genuinely merits. And because of that, the cost of that has to be added up and passed on to everybody else in premiums. And the insurance industry doesn't care as long as they can put an accurate price on it and charge the punter, there's no reason for them to care. Uh, the, the, the legal industry actively fosters this culture. And, you know, I have to be honest, the consumer does as well. Mm. Because, you know, for, for all that we can deplore this practice when we're looking at our motor insurance renewal, it's sad to say that, you know, whenever somebody does suffer an injury, you nearly ring the lawyer before you ring the doctor. People are, are rubbing their hands together thinking, how much money can I get? And And it is that broken dysfunction that, 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 you know, look, if we're going to tolerate that, okay, we're going to tolerate that. But you cannot tolerate that and have a fair price for your motor insurance. Mm. So if you're wondering why you're getting an unfair price for your motor insurance, it's because of this uh, um, widespread, near universal acceptance that an injury is equals cash instead of an injury equals reasonable and fair
4: compensation. All right, Conor, we'll leave it there. Good to talk to you as always and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Conor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland.
7: Michael Reed on
4: LMFM. Now, if you're waiting for an eye care procedure, you're one of 40,000 people who's on an outpatient waiting list. Around 14,000 people have been waiting for over a year. About 7,000 people have been waiting for 18 months. And, of course, some people have been waiting longer. Some people for up to two years with no hope of having a cataract removed. But on Friday, a bus went from the south To Belfast. On Saturday the 14 people who wanted cataracts removed, had them removed and were discharged and ready to go back home. Michael healy Ray, an independent TD for Kerry, joins us now and this is something that you do on a a regular basis and will continue to do, it would seem, for some time to come.
6: Yes, well first of all Michael, thank you for having me on your show and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I suppose the most important thing in the world that any human being could have is their sight. And uh, very sadly and unfortunately in the past I have known people who have lost the sight in one or both of their eyes while waiting to the cataract procedure. Now, in the world we're living in today, we're in a modern civilised society. This shouldn't be allowed to happen. If we were to hear of it happening in a third world country of somebody losing their sight, we'd say, how could this be allowed to happen? But it, it is and was happening in Ireland because of the treatment abroad fund and that is why I welcome the opportunity to alert your uh, listeners, to your very excellent programme, if they don't know this already, that there is a scheme in place whereby they can travel to the north. Now, I'm ashamed to say that... uh, this is the case. People mm. shouldn't have to do this. I I think it's wrong and, and I'd like to say that at the very outset and if anybody is critical and saying, well, why don't the politicians fix it and have it that we can do it here? Well, unfortunately, and I'd be the first person to put up my hands and say, I've been fighting about cataracts for 10 years and unfortunately, this is the best solution that I can find to somebody who needs to have an operation urgently and who is in danger of losing the sight in one or both of their eyes is to travel to the north. Now, it is a very excellent service. It's done in a private hospital. Yes, you have to pay for it. The cost is approximately 1,600 euros. But the ironic thing is you do your paperwork before you go, Mm. and then uh, about four weeks after coming home, you can redeem 90 to 95% of the 1,600 euros uh, from... Uh, the HSE. Now, no, and and ex- that's
4: for the procedure, not for the travel or mm. accommodation if that's uh, required the, or anything the, like that.
6: There is, Matt, the one thing that you lose out on and the one thing that you have to, we'll call, lose to mm. is the cost of the transport even though when in my case we'll say I organise it which, uh, um, how do you say, it makes it easier for people, they don't have to be worried about the hassle of all that. Mm. I block book the bedrooms and the hotels all that sort of thing. But, but what happens is uh, the people make a contribution towards that. You obviously get the best deal you can. I'd be shopping around, you'd get the best deal for the beds, you'd get the best deal for the bus and all that, but it still costs a, a certain amount of money. But but people, to be blunt about it, people don't mind that mm. because their attitude is, is that they need to have this operation. Now, another thing I want to praise is the work of our credit unions. And um, if you have a person... And we'll say "Who, 1,600 euros is an exorbitant amount of money for them to come up with, and they just can't do that. Well, our credit unions have been very good in that uh, a person can go to a credit union, especially if they have a, a history with them, mm. and say, right, I need 1,600 euros. This is a no-brainer, because mm. I am going to get the majority of this money back within four weeks. So please give me the money now. Yeah. Agree on some bit of it. The credit unions, they're not a charity organization. They have to cover their administrative costs. They're for our communities and all that. They're a very respectable institution. Mm. Um, but what you can do is uh, agree some uh, proportion of a little bit of interest to give them yeah. to cover their costs. And you can pay them back. It's, it's, they're guaranteed their money back in
4: a very short time frame. Four, six-week loan type of thing. Exactly. Uh, uh, and uh, the HSE is paying for it anyway. Exactly. You're so, guaranteed of the money. So 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 why is the HSE not carrying out the procedure? Surely it would be cheaper for the HSE to carry out the procedures. Right. But sure,
6: of course. But this is the biggest joke of all time. So the answer here is, right... Go to the north, have your operation, and we will pay for it. Stay here in the south, where we have the facilities to do the operation, mm. but we won't do it for you, and you'll be left on a waiting list for one, two, three, four, and five years.
4: Possibly the blind in that time, as you say. Then,
6: that you will go mm. blind. Yeah. And, like, mm. that is absolutely outrageous, you know? Mm. And this is the problem that we're up against. So what I want to do is, and this is, how would I say this has nothing to do with politics, right? This is just about alerting people to uh, a facility that's there. And and another thing I want to remind you of, uh, Michael, is, and your listeners, this is not just restricted to cataracts. This morning I was arranging a, a lady who, who needs a knee surgery. And uh, unfortunately, the surgery, the woman is in agony. It won't happen in, in, in the South on time, we'll say, to leave her, mm-hmm. alleviate her pain. So I, I was discussing the opportunity of she going north to have the operation again. I'm ashamed of our health service that this is the case. But at the end of the day, if a person needs something to be done uh, and if they're, how would we say, good enough to travel and able to travel, now the only disadvantage with a bigger procedure like a knee or a hip operation is that the cost is more. And again, you have to come up with it. You will get it back. But like it's, it's a big deal to come up with the amount mm. of money, because you can be talking about, you know, operations of that nature go between 6 and, and 10 and 11 and 12,000 euros. Indeed. And, mm. and it, while it's very smart to say, oh yes, Michael, you will get your money back, but you must bloody well come up with it in the first instance, which is no joke. Okay,
4: you know? well, it'll but give some people some food for thought. and uh, It
6: is, and you have very, very excellent politicians in your area that I'm sure that would help and facilitate in the same way as I do in Kerry, that they would be interested in, in in doing what I would call the donkey work.
4: Right? Beyond, beyond
6: the doubt. Words, and there any one of them, from any of the parties are known. I'm sure they would be willing to put their shoulder to the wheel because at the end of the day, and this is how we started and this is how I'd like mm. to finish... God gave you two eyes when you came into the world. Until you go out, you'd like to have the two of them to see around you. And I think it is probably one of the most important things that anybody could do is assist somebody in having that procedure carried out. And it's such a straightforward procedure. The only thing i describe it is it's like looking out the window of the car and the car all dirty. Mm. And then you come along and wash it, and all of a sudden you can see out again. And it, with a cataract in your eye, it is literally as simple as that. It's a very quick um it, it, you know, how do you call it non-obtrusive uh, operation uh, procedure we'll call it that uh, it doesn't cause distress really to the person a few days they're back to, to, to normal again and Fantastic
4: fine. Okay, we'll leave it there Independent TD for Kerry Michael Healy-Ray Thank you very much indeed
6: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
4: and let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
0: Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. In relation to this gallery report... Charlie from Navin phoned in and he says, I must say what a miraculous turnaround for Dr Scally. For the first few months, he was finding it hard to get information, finding it a struggle to get what he needed. A couple of months later, seems to have the whole thing covered and settled. Find it all very strange. As for the leaking of documents, I feel it's a total insult to the victims. It is nothing new in Ireland, of course. They wouldn't be the first victims that have been 100% insulted, not even thought of. In reality, regardless of what your commentator is saying now, Michael, it is simply the case that people do not matter. It is an absolute disgrace and I'm very disappointed.
4: OK, well, our, our commentator, I think, was equally disappointed, uh, the commentator being Minister Regina Doherty. And as to how the documents were leaked, well, I suppose the reality of it is is uh, that few of us have seen this report and few of us have had sight of the contents of the report and know exactly what Dr Scally is saying or why he believes a commission of investigation is not required at this stage. But perhaps the few people that have seen it, is key to the answer as to how it was leaked.
0: Grania on the same topic, says that that the content of this gallery report was leaked should be investigated, she feels. It just shouldn't be accepted. It's an absolute slap in the face to victims and their families. I think it's disgraceful. When you think of all that the families have been through, they should not have to find out what's in the report through leaks.
4: Mm, and quite often, as is with the case with leaks, uh, they end up being selective leaks, and uh, put into the context of the overall report, uh, it may read somewhat differently mm. than how it is being reported.
0: On Fianna Fáil and Findigale, Sean from Drogheda got in touch to say that both parties must think the electorate is stupid. I think they are role-playing at the moment, Michael, attempting to be at odds with each other, says Sean. We all know that they'll kiss and make up and agree a budget. Fianna Fáil have a chance to make a difference to the homeless crisis by supporting the no no-confidence vote in Own Murphy. But will they do that? No.
4: It's all fake and a load of nonsense. Okay, well, I suppose uh, you'd need a crystal ball to know if that's actually the case, uh, but uh, time will tell, no doubt. Hold that thought for a moment, though, Marie, if you will, because uh, the Minister for Communications, Dennis Nocton, is uh, to meet with senior executives from Facebook and Google uh, and to press them to confirm the age of young people when they go online. This follows uh, the annual report from Cyber Safe Ireland yesterday, which found speak to strangers when they are online, and uh, that 20% of 12-year-olds and 10% of 8-year-olds spend more than four hours a day online. Alex Cooney is the Chief Executive Officer of CyberSafe Ireland and on the line. Alex, do you believe that an Irish Government Minister can bear any influence when it comes to what these global industries do and how they operate their businesses?
8: Yeah, well, I think it's really important that he's taking these issues uh, directly to the headquarters um, because clearly the the age verification measures are not working. Um, we surveyed over 5,000 children aged between eight and 13, so it's it's a pretty con- comprehensive picture uh, of what's going on. And we found that 70% of them were were accessing social media, you know, and 97% of these kids are under the age of 13. which is is the minimum age on some of the apps. Sixteen is the minimum age on other apps. And then, of course, we've got the digital age of consent, which says that children should not be accessing services, these sorts of services, so social media and so on, uh, without parental uh, consent. Um, And in in our experience, some are accessing them with parental consent, and then we need to look at how informed that consent is and, and whether parents are... Are making uh, an informed decision, or are giving into pressure from their from their kids uh, to get the latest device, or to be allowed to download the latest app, um, and and then some kids are simply lying about the, their age to bypass it. It's it's all too easy to do.
4: Mm. Uh, and uh, without uh, the. Uh intention of the companies who host these sites uh, to verify the age of the children is there any way of controlling your child's behaviour because quite often adults feel it's gone beyond them, that it's something that uh, the chance to deal with came and passed
8: I think that that certainly we're finding that a lot of parents that we're talking to do feel very overwhelmed, they don't know where to start, they, they feel like their kids know more than they do Um, And I I think parents are under huge pressure from their children um, to to, to be allowed to partake in this kind of digital revolution. And to an extent, um, you know, we should be encouraging children to engage with technology. But but what we need to be doing is ensuring that it's it's a healthy um, engagement, that there's a healthy balance in in our online and offline lives. And also that the the, the way that they're engaging is, is a positive one. So, you know, learning to code, for example, is a really positive way. Of, the, of engaging with technology and, and skills that will serve them well well into the future. Um, you know, co-use, so playing with parents, so playing a game with a, with a parent, or look, parents looking up good educational games for their kids. These are all positive ways uh, for children to engage in technology. What we want to do is shift uh, the, the balance away from, you know, less positive uses uh, of uh, the Internet mm. and and to ensure essentially at the end of the day that there is a healthy balance. And parents do have a really important role to play in that. And I think we also, as parents, uh, and, and I'm a parent too, we need to think about modeling, our good, you know, modeling good behavior and thinking about how we're engaging as parents with technology and what message that's giving to our kids. So it's no good kind of saying to our kids, listen, you're, you've got to get off that, you're on it all the time. And then we're, you know, we have our own faces stuck in the screen, you know, Mm. when when our kids are trying to talk to us. So
4: So what does that mean? Uh, I mean, I think everybody says something similar to what you've said, uh, but uh, does it mean anything specific? Uh, Because uh, when uh, it comes to all of these things, uh, we all believe uh, that the problem lies elsewhere. It's somebody else's child who's at risk.
8: It's, I, no, I think we've all got uh, a, a part to play. We, you know, as, as, as parents, we can set the tone for our family's uh, relationship with technology.
4: So at what age do we allow children to use social media, or at what ages do we prohibit them from well, using it?
8: Well, well one thing I, I should say is we, we as an organisation are not advocating that children should be on, online under the age of 13 what we're saying is they, they are, you know, the majority of them mm. are. And if they're going to be online, so if your child is going to be online, there is a responsibility that comes with that. You know, if you're going to buy your child a device, you need to be prepared to be engaged in your, in your child's online life. There needs to be clear rules around use, you know, so you know, when and where they're allowed to use, uh, use the device, so preferably in family spaces where you can keep an eye on them because keeping an eye on them is going to be really important, especially when they're so young. Mm. And what we want to be doing is teaching them, equipping them with the skills to to manage their own online lives in a safe and responsible way. So we're also asking for digital literacy in schools. You know, I think that's really a a really uh, important Hmm. opportunity.
4: Uh, And when does that end? Because, uh, I mean, uh, this is real... Uh, Time for these children. This virtual world that they're engaging in relationships in is the reality of their lives in a a lot of cases. So they're forming relationships uh, and uh, maturing as human beings. So when do you allow them privacy and when do you not? Or when do you stop monitoring what they're doing?
8: Well, I think if you if you're going to ha- start as young as you can, really, yeah. once your child is is starting to access the the, the internet, starting to engage with technology, then it, you know we should be having conversations with our kids around it. You know, like, and 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 engaging in their lives. So when they get older, when they hit the teens and and, and the kind of mid teens, you're you're allowed to step back a bit and 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 allow them that privacy that they're definitely going to want. You know, so is but it, what you want is to feel a sense of confidence that, you know, you've instilled in them. Uh, a sense of of responsibility and a sense of good judgment, uh, you know, that that they will use good judgment when they're online, that they'll Mm. challenge the things that they see. They won't accept everything at face value. They'll understand the concept of fake news. They'll understand advertising. They'll understand the fact that a lot of these platforms are designed to be addictive. You know, what we want is kids self-regulating, that Mm. they're able to understand, you know, wow, this is too long. I I shouldn't be playing this game for two hours at a time, it's too long, I should be getting outside, I should be talking to my friends, I should be, you know, reading a book, you know, doing whatever else. It's uh, a
4: tall order, really, uh, when you consider how many adults uh, are falling victim to uh, those uh, traps. Same Uh,
8: same traps, yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah. I I think Mm -hmm. it's
8: all happened really fast, and I think Mm -hmm. that's why we're all struggling with it a little bit. And in a way, the findings of this report are a bit of a wake-up call uh, to say, you know, Kids really are online and they're online from a very young age. And we have a huge responsibility uh, as parents, as educators, as policymakers to ensure that our kids are are having safe and positive experiences online. Um, So I think we need to get our heads out of the sand and and, and really start to address it at home, in schools um, and, and through our legislation.
4: Okay. Well, thanks uh, for making that point with us this morning. Alex Cooney is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Cyber Safe Ireland. Now going back to more of your comments and uh, Marie, what else have you got for us?
0: if I can just go back, Michael, to uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. it seems to be occupying the minds of lots of our callers this morning. Three, Theresa from County Meath was one of those callers and she thinks that Leo Varadkar wants Fianna Fáil to continue to support the government before the budget and then if the budget is not pleasing to the people, they can always say Fianna Fáil agreed with it and kind of put the blame on them. This is what she thinks. Okay. She says, it seems to be me, me, me with Varadkar, with people lying on the streets and lying on the on trolleys, what is going on? She feels is unreal.
4: All right, interesting stuff. I'm not sure if everybody agrees, but I'm sure they'll let us know if they do or not, as the case may be. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. Marie and Maggie taking calls on that number now: eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. Or you can text us on zero eight six one eight hundred six five eight.
7: Michael Reed on
4: LMFM Now Dr Gabriel Scali has written his, his report it's uh, due to be published uh, tomorrow and it will make some 50 recommendations following on from uh, the cervical check scandal Dr Scali obviously knows what's in the report. The Minister for Health, Simon Harris, knows what's in the report. Undoubtedly, some officials know what's in the report. Minister Regina Doherty, as we heard this morning, doesn't know exactly or hasn't seen sight of uh, the report, as would be the case with all of uh, the Cabinet, uh, the women uh, affected by the scandal and, indeed, uh, their families. Uh, But some people in RTA and some people in the Irish Times have at least had sight of some of the report, and the families and uh, those affected are waking up up to the news that it's Dr Scully's view that a uh, commission of investigation is not now required. Uh, we're joined by Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on health and a uh, TD for Dublin Fingal. And uh, I'm sure, Louise, you haven't seen this report either. What do you make of it being leaked in the way that it has?
7: Good morning, Michael, and uh, good morning to your listeners. Well, you know, the, we refer to what what was going on as the cervical check scandal. And uh, the scandal was the way that these women and their families were treated. The scandal was that information, important information, was known by certain people and kept from them. Now, in the immediate aftermath of that scandal, we had both the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health take to the airwaves and issue uh, a number of promises, solemn promises, uh, as as their words, not mine, and apologies Um, And they used phrases like, you know, we have to learn from this. We have to make sure that, you know, women don't get left in the dark, don't get uh, treated in this poor way in the future. And the very next opportunity we see now, a leak, from the minister's office i heard the minister on the radio this morning and i have to say his response to this was pretty pathetic uh he said he doesn't know where the leak came from there aren't multiple copies of this report in circulation there's a small few people i mean you just said yourself you had uh a minister on the radio with you this morning who said that she didn't know of the contents. the minister knows well who had the Who have copies of the report? It's not the case that an investigation is needed. It's simply gathering a small few people together and finding out where it came from. But that's not the central issue because even if we identify who the person uh, the person is, the book stops with the minister. And yet again, we see that these families have been uh, these families have been let down. And Stephen Teep, who very sadly and tragically lost his wife Irene uh, as a result of this scandal, Stephen Teep was on social media this morning saying that he felt disrespected. So, you know, this is not about mm. the feelings of me as the, the opposition spokesperson on health. It's not about about your feelings either, Michael, so mm. I'm sure you're mm. as outraged as I am. This is actually about the people who uh, are impacted by this and the promises that were made to them, the disrespect that has been shown to them. And, you know, the minister now is talking about bringing forward the briefing. So he, he tweeted this morning that he was uh, very pleased that um, Professor Scali is now going to brief the victims of this ahead of time and they will be briefed today. Mm. Now, I wrote to the minister during the recess and I made it very clear to him that from a Sinn Féin perspective, that what we felt was the very least that these women and their families deserved was to be the first to see the report there's no uh, legal or constitutional requirement that this go to Cabinet. That's a convention. There's no there's no requirement that this would go to Cabinet first. And there was nothing to prevent the Minister from bringing the women uh, and their families and the victims of this into a room and sharing the contents of the report with them. They were certainly not going to leak it to the media. That's not what they're in the business of. Uh, of doing. They just want some information. And I just think, you know, we we waited, we put up with the fact that there was delays Mm. in relation to the report because, and you know, I mean, I'm the opposition spokesperson on health. It's my job sometimes to criticise the government, but we didn't. We took a step back and said, look, this has to take as long as it takes because it's important. We tried not to make a political football out of it um, or to leave ourselves open to accusations that we would do such a thing. We stood back. We said, OK, we're disappointed. the report is going to be delayed, but
4: it's important that it's done right. Because mm, it, um, it was established, uh, the Commission, in uh, uh, May and should have completed in six weeks. And here we are now uh, into the middle of September uh, and the report uh, is about to be published. Uh, but uh, at the time of asking Dr Scully to review what happened, uh, there were calls to just moved directly to a commission of investigation and that in the same way the minister could bang a few heads together now and said only four or five, 10, 20 people had a copy of this report who leaked it and tried to get to the bottom of it. It was suggested that he could have got to the bottom of a lot of the questions that Dr Scully was asked to look at
7: he possibly could have and it you know the the, the commission of inquiry would have had powers uh, will have I'm I still hopeful one would be set up will have um powers of compelability you know in the event that there is reluctance by people to to share information and so for that reason i think a commission is important however the uh, the the minister knows well that, uh, he knows well the people who have sad sight of that report. He knows well, I would imagine, mm. where the, the leak is coming from, uh, despite what he said this morning. But that's really a bit of a side issue. What it is, is it's just another layer of disrespect shown uh, to these families and you know it might be uh you know, that we could say now that a commission we could have, we should have gone straight to a commission but we listened to the families as well and the families wanted to engage with the scally process they met with professor scally mm. they were happy that he was going to do a good job they were happy that he was going to uh, you know make an initial finding and then we could move to a commission and the problem sometimes with the commission is that uh, you know because of the nature of the, the way commissions of inquiry are conducted uh, because of the legal requirements, sometimes they can take an inordinately long amount of time. And if you remember, Michael, and I'm sure your listeners will as well at the time, you know the the women who were coming forward. Um, you know, they were they were young women who were extremely sick. There was a time imperative in terms of getting some information out into the public domain and getting some answers for those women, which you know was why we all of the uh, all of the, the the opposition parties and, and the government backed the Scally report because we believed that that was the best and most efficient and quickest uh, way to get some important information out into the public domain. At no stage did we say that was going to rule out a commission of inquiry. In fact, I see it very much as the precursor to a commission of inquiry. What I did say to the Minister at the time, and I'm I'm on the public record as having said this, is that we should use the time while the Scally report is being compiled that we should have used that time to make some amendments to the legislation governing commissions of inquiry to make them more streamlined, to make them more efficient and to ensure that they deliver. Um, regrettably the government didn't uh, take that piece of advice from Sinn Féin but I still mm. think there is a lot of merit in uh, in having a commission of inquiry and I say this Michael and I probably mm. should have said this at the outset I haven't seen, uh, and you pointed that out I haven't seen the Scally report. I have heard that Professor Scally hasn't recommended that there be a commission of inquiry, but I also heard the, the Minister mm. uh, promise, regardless of what was in the report, that there would be a commission of inquiry, and I sincerely hope that this is not going to be I, I've heard, I've, I've,
4: thing. I, hear, I heard the Minister actually saying this morning uh, that Dr Scully has not recommended that there wouldn't be a commission of investigation. It's his view that he's made 50 recommendations, uh, Mm -hmm. but the uh, establishment of a commission of investigation uh, is not one of the recommendations and neither is it uh, recommended that there wouldn't be one, but he has made it known that he doesn't believe uh, there should be a commission uh, because uh, it can be dealt with, the system can be uh, made more efficient uh, and uh, some of these problems ironed out uh, far quicker by moving to solve the problem rather than uh, investigate what happened. Uh, but are you concerned uh, that because all we have to go on is the reports from RTE and the Irish Times this morning that the leaking may have been selective leaking?
7: This was a political move. The leak was a political decision. The Minister is allowing some information out into the public domain. or Sorry, I'm not saying the Minister allowed the public domain. The leak allows Information to come out into the public domain. And when we uh, had questioned the Minister previously, practically as one, um, the, the opposition spokesperson said that the drip feed of information via the media in some instances into the public domain was not acceptable. And that's exactly what this is. Um, that's exactly what this is. I, I was very, very shocked because I genuinely... I thought that on on this instance, given the sensitivities, given the people involved and given the high profile of the cases, uh, that there would indeed um, be some degree of sensitivity shown to the families. It's really unfortunate that it has happened the way that it has. And I heard Mm. um, Lorraine Walsh this morning on the radio, and I mean, she made the point, these are people with young families. Stephen Teep is a man who has a job and two small children to look after. They had made arrangements to be in Dublin tomorrow. They now are going to have to try and rearrange so that they can be in Dublin today, when really the respect should have been shown to them to keep that information. It's it's not yeah. it's not important that members of the public know. Yeah. And as I understand that that it, Vicky
4: Phelan was due knows. to be treated tomorrow uh, and she was trying to rearrange that so that she could be yeah. available for the briefing. Uh, but, uh, I mean, uh, this is a scandal that saw the head of the HSE, Tony O'Brien, resign and there were questions about other people, including the current minister uh, and his predecessor, the Taoiseach, uh, Leo Radker. Uh, and surely a commission of investigation, if it was established, would be asking who knew what when. Uh, and that would include questions put to both ministers.
7: Absolutely, and I would like to see uh, a commission. And I'm on the public record as having called for this previously. That any commission of investigation has to look at the decision to outsource these. Uh, that at the decision to outsource originally the um, outsourced the screening to the labs in America. And that decision was a political decision because we had the medical laboratory scientists in front of the Joint Irocliff Committee on Health, and they were very clear. They said it wasn't a clinical decision in 2008 when that decision was made to outsource to America, that it was an entirely political decision. Now, those are their words, not my Mm. words. Um, So it has to go right back. It has to look at what happened under the Fianna Fáil government when, you know, they they made the decision to outsource. Mm. It has to examine all of that and that's mm. why I think a commission of inquiry might be necessary, so that we can get to the absolute root of the uh, root cause of
4: this. Uh, okay, and, and we saw uh, Minister Harris uh, being surprised uh, and uh, being given information last minute. He's about to make statements uh, in the Dáil uh, about this. Uh, you said that you believe this is a, a political leak. Be more specific, if you will. What, what do you think the minister knows about this leak?
7: Well, a very small number of people are aware of the contents of that report so i think the minister can very easily find out who it was whoever it was that leaked it i'm sure believed that they were uh, that they were doing some sort of a service it's clearly come from the department of health i can't see that it would have come from anywhere else um and i believe that it is Motivated by political motivations. I mean, there's no, there's no clinical reason for that leak to happen. There's certainly no compassionate um, or empathetic reason for that leak to happen. I can only assume that the, uh, that the motivation is a political one to somehow uh, get the information out there. We've, we've seen this before. You know, when little bits of information get leaked out into the public domain to, in an attempt merely uh, to, to soften up the public for what's coming. Um, My fear is that the Minister may now backtrack because it wouldn't be the first time uh, that he's backtracked on the promise that he made and that he may now backtrack on the Commission of Inquiry. And me personally, I believe um, and, and my party believe that that would be the wrong course of action because I think we do need to look at what happened right the way along, going right back to the decision taken by Fianna Fall to outsource uh, to the, the labs in America.
4: OK, well, this is uh, obviously uh, going to unravel uh, over the next couple of days uh, as more information from the report itself becomes public. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment. And many thanks, as always, for joining us today. Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as I'm sure you've heard at this stage, uh, Sean Gallagher and uh, Joan Freeman have received nominations uh, to go forward uh, to contest uh, the presidential election, along with, of course, the incumbent Michael D. Higgins. Uh, let's talk about this a little bit more with Daniel McConnell, political editor with the Irish Examiner. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Uh, I heard you say on Claire Byrne last night you believe there will be five candidates. Indeed, you're reporting in the Irish Examiner this morning that there'll be five candidates.
3: Yeah, so we know that the incumbent, Michael B. Higgins, is obviously in the race. He can nominate himself. We know that Sinn Féin are likely to nominate Liam and this weekend. That decision will be formally taken this weekend. And on foot of the decision taken by councils yesterday, Sean Gallagher and John Freeman are already confirmed as candidates in the race and it's expected that the other dragon, uh, Gavin Duffy, the businessman and kind of consultant, is likely to uh, enter the race as well. He already has the support of three councils. He just needs one more. And it's widely expected that Loud County Council will give him that backing uh, when they decide to take their vote, I think it's that uh, as early as next week.
4: If he doesn't get the backing uh, of Carlo beforehand, is it?
3: Yes, basically, it's up to any other. <laughs> sorry, excuse me. Um, it's up to any other of the remaining councils that that have not yet uh, attributed their vote to any of the the, the candidates to to support um, any of the other one, any of the other people who are expressing an interest. Um, both Joan Freeman and Sean Gallagher basically said that once they had gotten the support of four councils, they would essentially withdraw from seeking further nominations to enable anyone else um, who seeking to get into the race to uh, to allow them to do so. Um, so it's it very much is a that that Gavin Duffy now stands on three and it is widely expected that that at least one of the council will will be more than happy to put put his name into the mix. So, as I said, we were reporting this morning and as I said on TV last night, we are looking at a five-person field and I I wouldn't struggle to think that any of the other um, aspirin candidates are likely to get their nomination. I think, you know, you would have seen some expression of interest from at least one one council so far um, if they were in the mix, but we haven't seen any of that. Um, you know. So hmm. there might be an awful lot of those people who have sought to get on the ballot paper uh, being left disappointed at the end of the day.
4: There is uh, the other route, uh, though, of uh, getting a, a nomination uh, from 20 Oireachtas members, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is, but I suppose that's a much more difficult task given the fact that the Fianna Gael TDs and Senators, the Labour TDs and Senators, uh, Fianna Fáil... Uh, TDS and senators, and now the Social Democrats are all backing Michael D Higgins. Uh, you also have um, Sinn Féin, obviously, going to they're going to back their own candidates. So you have a huge tranche of TDS and senators already off the pitch because that they've either aligned themselves to Michael D Higgins or they're aligning themselves to, Shin, to the Sinn Féin candidates. Um, so therefore, all attention is on the independents, and I know that uh, Michael Fitzmaurice uh, has been taking a meeting or gathering of of the independent TDS and senators to try and see if they can lend their voice or lend their support to at least one candidate but I'm kind of struggling to see them coalescing behind any of the candidates that are not already in the race Um, I mean there would have been a move if Sean Gallagher or Gavin Duffy were struggling I think you would have maybe seen a move behind them Mm. and Joan Joan Freeman as well I mean you know, she is a sitting senator Um, but given the fact that they're all now well so it's given that uh, Joan Freeman and Sean Gallagher are already in the race and Gavin Duffy is very much like to be in the race you're now looking to see what not those, those that independent support may go somewhere else. But again, I'm just struggling to see which of those other candidates um, could unify that block of, of rather disparate independents.
4: Okay, and Sinn Féin will confirm uh, their candidate this weekend.
3: That's the plan. Yet yeah, there's a meeting this weekend, and, and ultimately, what we, you know, we're all being tipped off, and we're all being led to believe that Leanne Nairita, the MEP for Ireland South, uh, first election in 2014, is likely to get the nod. Um, you know, there was a move last night to put Cooeyvian O'Quin on the departing TD for Cavan Monaghan's name into the mix. Uh, I think that was probably more a gesture of, of kind of you know recognition of his service to the party, rather than actually being uh, a kind of a genuine attempt to try and scupper um the move to, to, to put Leonie Rida onto the, onto the ballot paper. Um, but again, time will tell. I mean, you know, if, if momentum is built up over the next couple of years then that that situation could change. And we'll kind of this is only my read of it as, as mm-hmm. of now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we wait until the weekend. But again, <clears throat> ultimately, you know, you take a step back from this trainer getting into the race very late in the day. Uh, you know, if they if you if, you know you would think that if they genuinely harbored ambitions to kind of win the race, they would have had a person in the field much much sooner than this. So you kind of get the impression that they're going to use this exercise to. For the brand of Lina Rida to forward the brand of Sinn Féin, this new party under under Mary Lou Macdonald, more inclusive, selling this idea of, you know, a United Ireland once again. Um rather than actually kind of trying to, to make a genuine tilt at Michael D. Higgins. That's again my view as of now. Um you know you know, he is in a pretty unassailable position as of now. I mean he, it's his very much to lose. I mean, mm. you know, repeated opinion polls have said that he, he holds a commanding lead. However, once the sort of, the, the campaign gets uh, underway in earnest, and I suppose you, you know, he's down as a kind of, he has to get down and dirty as a kind of a regular candidate as opposed to being the incumbent, um, then, then that might change, and his numbers may, may narrow slightly. But, you know, barring any major disasters, it's very much, I think, his to lose, I think. He, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. Even those who are opposing him uh, have had little or no criticism of him of how he's performed his duties as president. So, I mean, he is in a very strong position, um, but, you know, campaigns can change everything, as we know.
4: Mm-hmm. And uh, do you expect uh, President Higgins to engage in debates uh, with uh, people contesting his position?
3: I can't see how he can avoid it now that there is going to be a field of candidates. And I can't see how he... he, If he doesn't, say, do the TV debates or the radio debates or whatever it is that that might be, he would stand accused of running away from the debate. and, And that could backfire on him very quickly. I mean just look at the negative reaction that Gemma Doherty got for not showing up at Fingal County Council yesterday. I mean, you know, you would have seen a lot of people probably maybe supporting her, um, but the fact that she was due and scheduled to appear before Fingal and then didn't appear, Mm. uh, particularly in light of, you know, the the sort of criticism that she was likely to get from Jimmy Guerin, the the brother of uh, Veronica Gearn.
4: He made um, a very strong statement, didn't he?
3: He did, he made it, Mm. and I was there Mm. for it, and, um, Mm. you know, it was at the very start of the meeting, and, um, you know, you could not be, you could not help but but, but be kind of taken aback by the strength of the language that he used mm-hmm. um, the veracity of what he said, and you know, you know the, the, the hurt and offence that, that he and clearly his family have taken at the Commons made by Jim O'Leary in mm-hmm. recent times. Again, now to give her her due credit, she is sticking by her story. I spoke to her last night, and she said she will not be silenced by anybody, mm-hmm. including Jimmy Guerin so, I mean, she was certainly you know vehement in, in her in, in her stance. However, Jimmy Guerin
4: saying that only he's only ever come across two people uh, who thought that John Gilligan. Uh, wasn't responsible for his sister's death, uh, John Gilligan and uh, Gemma O'Doherty.
3: Yeah, that was probably the the strongest statement of the whole lot. And I I thought um, that really kind of nailed, um, you know, it put pressure on her to really kind of back up what she was saying and give some sort of evidence as to why she thought this. Because, you know, it's one thing to make a casual sort of a side comment about, you know, your beliefs about what may or may not have happened. But this is the family of, you know, Veronica Gehren's death was seismic in, in, its, in its impact, not only in journalism in Ireland, mm-hmm. but, you know, wider society. It led to the formation, the establishment of the, the central, you know, the, the Criminal Justice Bureau. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, her, the legacy of, of her murder, you know, looms large still over journalism today. So for her, for, for that link to be made in, in, in a way that it was made, you know, did cause great offence to the Gehren family. And, you know, it certainly raised an awful lot of eyebrows amongst um, Many of Veronica Guerin's colleagues, and, and you know, at the time, and some of her friends in journalism at the time, um, and, and ultimately, what we're seeing now is, you know, the Gearn, you know, Jimmy Guerin. I suppose was speaking about his family, his late mother, Bernie, who I would have known when I worked in the Sunday Independence. She was a lovely woman. Um, you know, he was obviously speaking on behalf of the family. You know, and the hurt they they are being that they are uh, having to go through. Um so it just you know it's been a kind of rather unseemly episode altogether. And I thought, um, you know, you know, within the space of two and a half to three minutes, you know, Mr. Gearing kind of nailed. Uh, I thought nailed, nailed the, the real position. I mean, uh, there's no evidence to suggest that there was a state uh, state involvement or state collusion in the death of Veronica Gearn. Um And uh, you know, I, I I thought you know. I think it's now incumbent upon General Doherty, who's, you know, since when being pressed about this issue, has been kind of refused to comment. I think she did a, a doorstep with Pascal Sheehy of RT, she, he, oforty, and, you know, he was asked, she was asked several times, uh, what, you know, where's the evidence for her comments, and she just simply refused to answer the question. So I think it's now incumbent on her to to, to clarify this matter. Um, but I, I ultimately, you know, you're you getting back to the, to the wider race. You're kind of struggling to see where does she get herself onto the nomination papers? Where does she and like the likes of Kevin Sharkey and the others uh, who who have been named and expressed an interest, you kind of you're struggling to see you know where they get the, the twenty nominations from the Iraqis or where do they get the names, you know, of the mm-hmm. or the backing of four councils, you know, at this stage. But you know, there's still a bit of there's still a bit of time to, to play with. Okay. Uh, and you know there may are, yeah, there may be a surprise or two down the line but uh, you you know, mm-hmm. as I know I still think we're looking at a five uh, five person field for, for the presidency in October mm-hmm. 26.
4: Okay, well, we're a week out from uh, the next political term. The doll resumes uh, next week, and uh, the Fianna Fáil think-in taking place uh, today. A lot of uh, the talk recently uh, to do with the budget, the confidence and supply agreement, uh, which is agreed first, uh, and indeed, housing uh, and other related matters. But all of that now has uh, been overshadowed uh, by the Scully report. Indeed, the leaking of uh, the Scully report today, and uh, Louise O'Reilly of Sinn Fein uh, telling us uh, a few moments ago she believes it was a political leak. Uh, this is going to be a very big story, not just uh, today and tomorrow, but for the coming days.
3: Absolutely. I mean, the scally report, you know, delayed scally report was due, you know, uh, initially kind of uh, at the end of May, early June. Um, we're now into kind of mid September now at this stage. And, you know, the manner in which this, like, you know, we had heard, you know, obviously, you know, from our point of view, from a journalist's point of view, we knew the scally report was likely to land. This week, we knew we like to was with Cabinet on, on Wednesday, um, and, uh, you know, so obviously you're making inquiries, and, you know, what we were getting back initially was, listen, we're adamant that the families must be briefed first before, you know, before it's kind of made available. Um, so then when you see leaks like that, not only in our own paper, um, but in the Irish Times and on RT and elsewhere... Um, you know it does kind of like Simon Harris having to go out on radio this morning to try and, and kind of apologise to those affected you know because obviously the likes of Stephen Teep and the other family victims have expressed their outrage and, and discussed it and they're upset at reading about this in the newspapers you know having been given that promise that they would be kind of briefed first um, it you know it, it's an unfortunate episode I, I, you, know, I, you know obviously there's a public interest huge public interest so you can defend it from a journalistic point of view that it's in the newspapers or whatever like that but I suppose you know from a government point view, you know, those who are seeking to put it out there, um, you know, do stand accused possibly of, of, you know, trying to kind of control the message. And you probably would have thought on this particular one, you know, it would have been best just trying and keep it locked, you know, you know, keep it much more you know, locked down.
4: And um, how will that feed into Fianna Fáil thinking uh, and its position of facilitating the minority government?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, Fianna Fáil have made it very clear that, you know, they've had plenty of opportunities, you know, and plenty of issues that they could have, you know, called cried foul on confidence and supply, you know, not least housing and health and all the rest, but cervical check is obviously one of those issues that, that really, you know, has, has exercised the, the public consciousness in, in recent months. Um, it'll be very interesting Interesting to see what what Fianna Fáil Fall decide to do today. You know, you know, will they how how they express their outrage or how they express their their disquiet in relation to this. I certainly don't get any sense immediately that this becomes an issue that the government might necessarily fall over. Um, you know, I, I, I you know, I, again, I we're just looking to see, you know, if if. This government is to fall this side of Christmas. You know, you're looking. You're just kind of beginning to look around, well, what issue could a break happen? Mm. Because both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Fáil are just petrified to, uh, you know, not be blamed for causing a, a, an election. You know, the idea, you know, they may want to go, but it's trying to find the mechanism to go with credibility. Um, that's the difficulty, and. Um, you know, but in relation to the Scattery report, you know, we obviously now have a timeline. You know, it looks like Simon Harris will brief the victims today, ahead of you know, as opposed to tomorrow mm-hmm. as he as he originally intended. And um, he has to try and mitigate the damage on this because it's clear, you know. The families feel very let down, and rightly so. In my view, um, and also as well, you know, there, there is a legitimate public interest in all of this to, to know exactly, you know, whether or not we can have confidence in the cervical check system. Uh, whether or not, you know, you know, people will be held accountable for clearly gross negligence, in my view, as to what went on, um, and ultimately, you want to see kind of. Um, Uh, Procedures and policies put in place to ensure that this sort of thing can't happen again. What I would hate to see, Michael, to finish off with this, what you'd hate to see is a kind of another report coming, you know, blaming no individuals but blaming, you know, the systems failures. Because they're the sort of reports that the system can simply wash away and ignore. You know what we what we'd like to see, hopefully, if we can, is something that you might actually say, "Person X in a particular position was responsible, and they need to be held accountable." And ultimately, you know, we wait to see the report in its entirety.
4: All right, we'll leave it there, and thank you very much indeed, as always, Daniel McConnell, political editor with the Irish Examiner.
7: Michael Reed, Reed on,
4: on LMFM. FM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr of Navin Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And we begin in Drogheda, where Garda are investigating a robbery.
9: That's right, good morning Michael. On Sunday last, that's the 9th of September, at approximately 7 to 7.30pm, at the Maxall Filling Station on the Dunor Road in drata The two people entered this premises, one of which was armed with a syringe, so as you can imagine this was indeed a very frightening experience for the staff member involved. They demanded the contents of the till and then they both left the shop on foot. So just to remind listeners again, it happened on Sunday last, that's the 9th of September, around 7 to 7.30pm. And maybe somebody recalls seeing two people in the vicinity of the Maxwell Filling Station on the Dinore Road in Drogheda. Even perhaps earlier in the day, or maybe someone saw a vehicle or anything which may have caught their eye and they thought might be a little unusual. So the Guardian Drogheda are investigating this incident and would be very appreciative of any help from our listeners this morning.
4: We've uh, theft from a a car in Dulic to report on next.
9: Yes, last Saturday, which was the 8th of September, between 6.30 and 7.30pm on Church Road in Ardcath, Dulic. The owner of the vehicle parked their car and went into mass and when they returned to their car, they noticed that the rear left-hand side window had been smashed and a handbag had been stolen from under the passenger seat. Now, we do always advise that people should never leave any goods visible in uh, in an uh, unoccupied car, uh, be it a handbag, phone or a laptop. Now, in this particular case, the bag was, in fact, under the seat. However, I would advise people that if you are leaving anything in your car, to have it stored or secured before you arrive at your location, rather than doing it when you're there. And this is simply to prevent opportunists who may observe you placing your bag or your phone either under a seat or in the boot of your car. So the Guardian Jalik are looking for assistance with this incident, which took place last Saturday evening between 6.30 and 7.30pm on Church Road in Ardcath.
4: All right, more items uh, stolen from a vehicle in the next uh, report. Uh, This uh, is uh, a work van in Drogheda.
9: That's right. On Thursday the 6th of September between 10am and 11am at the Aura Leisure Centre on Marley Lane here in Drogheda a white Renault van was broken into and there were a number of tools taken in this incident which was of significant loss to the owner. Specifically what was taken were two DeWalt nail guns a DeWalt angle grinder, a Stanley saw a DeWalt drill, a skill saw and four DeWalt batteries. And perhaps somebody listening this morning recalls being at or in the vicinity of the Aura Leisure Centre on Marley's Lane in Drahada. Around 10am and 11am it can be a busy time with classes going on and people attending while children are at school. So if there was anything that you saw that was unusual or suspicious, don't hesitate in contacting the Guardian in Drogheda and also just want to take this opportunity to remind people again of the importance of clearly marking their property to make it easily identifiable. So when Gardaí recover property, it makes it much easier to reunite it with its owner um, if it has been marked or the owner has some specific serial numbers for their items.
4: In particular, expensive tools, uh, I take it, because uh, they are targeted in the way that they are so often. Uh, we go to Knockbridge next, uh, where Gardaí are investigating a burglary.
9: Yes, Thursday last, that's the 6th of September again, from 8am to 5pm, at Newtown in Knockbridge, so the homeowners in this case were gone to work for the day. And on their return, they noticed that their shed had been broken into and the doors, in fact, had been kicked in. And a very valuable bicycle and a lawnmower were stolen. So again, as with the previous incident, just to re- reiterate the importance of having valuables marked and easily identifiable. And also, given the time of year, now we're coming into autumn, winter, and the evenings are getting starting to get darker a little bit earlier, and it might be a good idea for homeowners to reassess their home security and to make sure they have an alarm fitted and that it is used, and not only when the house is vacant, but also at night, and that there is sufficient lighting outside your home, and sensor lighting can be very effective, particularly in rural locations. And there are lots of useful and practical ways to secure your home, and to have a look at these, listeners can check out the Garda website at garda.ie.
4: OK, prudent advice. Uh, We'll conclude this week with uh, theft uh, that occurred in Navan.
9: Yeah, sometime over the weekend from Saturday lunchtime to Monday morning around 7am there was a significant amount of work items and tools stolen from a building site in Johnstown in Navan. and listeners may be familiar with Cush Glasson which is a large housing development ongoing at the moment and perhaps somebody listening this morning was in this particular area as many people drive around and look at properties for sale over the weekends and maybe you saw someone or a vehicle at this particular site um, it may not have appeared suspicious at the time but if anyone recalls seeing anything to please come Contact Nav and Gardie, who are anxious to progress this investigation. And as always, if people prefer to use the Garda confidential line, it's always available on 1800 travel six one.
4: Fiona Kerr of Navan Garda Station, thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme, but that's where we bring our programme to its conclusion today because our time has run out And us once again. Before we go, let me remind you that there will be a podcast of today's show available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. i Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning.